Hey, this is Scott Ardella, author of The Edge of Strength, now available on Amazon, and you're listening to the Ardella Training Podcast, the strength and performance podcast for the serious fitness enthusiast. Now, let's get started with this week's show. Hey guys, if you want to learn all about my unconventional but powerful approach to maximizing strength and physical potential, you'll find everything in my book, The Edge of Strength. This book contains the key insights I've discovered through decades of training experiences, drilled down to what matters most. Nearly 300 pages, 27 chapters, and practical, actionable, and valuable information and resources, no matter where you are in your training journey, beginner or advanced, you'll gain new insights to achieve long-term results. And that is what it's all about. You can get the book right now at Amazon.com as a print or Kindle edition, although I recommend the print book because I want you to be able to refer back to this and apply the information. If you want to check out a sample chapter, you can go to ardellatraining.com forward slash edge book to learn more and download a free chapter right now. Once again, go to ardellatraining.com forward slash edge book. The Edge of Strength is an unconventional guide to live your strength and discover your greatness. Check it out. Hey guys, welcome to episode number 171 this week with my guest powerlifter and fitness writer, Greg Knuckles. I'll tell you more about Greg in just a minute. Before we get into the interview this week, I did want to congratulate the winners of last week's great book giveaway. I also want to say thank you to all of the participants who took part in the book giveaway. I greatly appreciate your participation in the contest. Now, here are the winners that will be receiving a physical copy of the brand new book, Deskbound by Kelly Sturette. Kelly was the guest on last week's show, episode number 170. These are the winners in no particular order, and I do apologize if I mispronounce anybody's name. Jamie Gaylor, Corey Lambrecht, Travis Schrage, Ev Musselman, Noah Marek, Elliot Goldstein, Brian Tully, Teresa Waters, Mark Luco, and Jacob Van Horn. Congratulations, guys. Make sure to read through and take action and apply the information from this great book. I think there is information and solutions for everybody to improve movement, health, and performance in this book. This is a game-changing book, Deskbound, that I think will have a huge impact in people's lives. So thank you once again if you took part in last week's book giveaway. One other quick thing I wanted to mention here is that we are starting a couple of new things here on the podcast. One of the new things is a series of short interviews we're calling the Interrogation Series. These are short, rapid-fire interview sessions with key takeaways. These interviews are with real-world people from the Ardella Training community, and I'm really excited about these interviews, and I think you're going to get a lot of value out of them. So stay tuned for the first interview from the Interrogation Series coming your way very soon. And they will be in between the regular interview sessions here on the Ardella Training Podcast. All right, let me tell you about Greg Knuckles and then we're going to dive into the interview. Greg Knuckles is the owner and founder of strengththeory.com, a website dedicated to combining lifting advice with biomechanics and scientific theory. Thousands of people visit and learn from strength theory each month. Greg has held three all-time world records in powerlifting. His current numbers, and I hope these are accurate, are a 755-pound squat, 475-pound bench, and a 725-pound deadlift. Not too shabby. So guys, let's uh, jump into the interview this week with Greg Knuckles. I think you're really going to uh, enjoy this week's session. So let's check it out. All right, guys, Greg Knuckles is joining me today, and I can tell you that I am really excited about this show. I think this is going to be a hugely valuable interview for you guys. Greg has over a decade of experience under the bar. He sold three all-time world records in powerlifting in the 220 and 242 classes, and he's put up some really, really impressive numbers. And uh, he is the creator of strengththeory.com. And uh, Greg, thank you so much for joining me on the show today, man. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Scott. So instead of doing the typical kind of backstory, kind of standard question, I always like to do a, a different question to open things <clears throat> up. So the question I had for you, Greg, is since uh, you did this recent article, this this massive guide about how to squat, which is basically like a, a book 
a free book online. It's 24,000 words. I wonder if you could talk about that article, you know, just give listeners an overview of what that is and maybe tell a little bit about the work and research that went behind putting that out there. Okay. So in terms of the work and research that went into it, it has, I need to go back to count to be sure, but something like 103 citations to scientific journal articles that I had to read and annotate to make sure I understood them. It takes a while just to sit behind a keyboard and pound out that many words. And then, you know, obviously making graphics, formatting, blah, blah, blah. So all in all, it probably took about two months to write. So it was a pretty big project. The Probably the most common pieces of feedback we've gotten back on it so far is one, this is really cool. I like it. And that, thank you. And yep. number two is, so you're telling me all of these things that people obsess about don't really matter all that much. And I just need to experiment for myself and figure out what feels best for me. And to that, I say, absolutely. Um, <laughs> because yeah. so essentially in the squat, you have four demands. You have spinal extension demands, which that depends both on how strong your back is and how effectively you can brace your torso. So you have that. You have plantar or uh, uh, dorsiflexor demands. Well, demands on your plantar flexors, your calf muscles, and then hip and knee extension demands. And so essentially, most people, they're pretty strong deadlifters. They have fairly strong backs. So they may have issues bracing specifically to the squat, but generally they're not going to be limited by back weaknesses. And it is possible that your squat can be limited by weak angles, but that's not very common either. So for most people, most of the time, their squat's going to be limited because their knee extensors, their quads are too weak, or their hip extensors, their glutes, hamstrings, adductor magnus, etc. are too weak. And so when you're looking at those two things, you're quads and hip extensors, and you're trying to, to wrap your head around, okay, well, what things make the squat easier on the whole or harder on the whole? You can work out this, if, if you're like reasonably comfortable with math, you can work out this, this pretty cool identity really easily. So knee extensor demands, like joint moments is length of the moment arm times like basically resistance at that joint. So the moment arm for the knee extensors is distance from center of mass to the knee. For the hip extensors, it's distance from center of mass to the hip. If you have those two things together, you have the length of your femur. So knee plus hip extensor demands is basically your body weight plus the weight of the barbell times the length of your femur, depending on the angle between your femur and the ground. So what all of that means is <laughs> from the waist down, right. footwear, stance width, bar position, none of that stuff impacts like your summed lower body demands in the squat to any meaningful degree whatsoever. And so for the most part, it really is just playing around like what stance width feels best to you. Well, I don't know. Okay, try around shoulder width. How does that feel? Go a little wider. How does that feel? Go a little narrower. How does that feel? And, you know, play around with that for stance width, how far out you point your feet, uh, what shoes you wear. And that's, that's really about it. <laughs> I guess ahead. it really all comes down to, to comfort is what you're saying, number one, and then body structure, number two, being that we're all built differently and we're all going to have different moments and femur lengths and, and all that kind of stuff. So is that essentially what, what it comes down to? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like they're, there are a bunch of things that can make little differences individual to individual, but a lot of these things that people like really put a lot of time into worrying about and freaking out about because of all of the beautiful slash frustrating redundancies built into like your body and biomechanics in general, those things don't matter all that much in, in a general sense. So it is just about experimenting and figuring out what works best for you as an individual. So let me ask you this kind of a general question, but do you think that we over obsess about the squat technique? I mean, do we overanalyze the technical analysis of the squat in general? Oh, absolutely. So uh, two, two really good examples here. So two of the best squatters all time are Blaine Sumner and Dursun Svink. Blaine's a powerlifter and Dursun was a weightlifter. He competed in the mid-90s. And Dursun Svink squatted somewhere close to 400 kilos at a body weight around 90 kilos. And if you watch video of his squats, really close stance, super upright. Like 
it, it doesn't look like his torso inclines forward hardly any at all. High bar, weightlifting shoes, like that's that's one end of the spectrum. And then Blaine, Blaine is absurdly strong in spite of being built incredibly poorly for the squat. Like <laughs> he has these crazy long femurs and he can barely get to depth because he has to lean so far forward to reach parallel because his femurs are so long. And so he squats low bar with a ton of forward torso lean. I think he squats in flat shoes, low bar. And if you just look at the two squats, they are as opposite of squat forms as you're going to see. And both of them are two of the best squatters that have ever walked the face of the earth. So, and Dursun maybe could squat like Blaine, but I think if he inclined his torso that much, since he has like pretty short legs, I think he'd just fall forward onto his face. And there's literally zero way that Blaine could squat as upright as Dursun could. Like they're just built differently. So their, their squats look different, but they're both incredibly good at it. Got it. Okay. So we know that there are different squat variations based on the things that you just talked about. And you just gave two great examples, like complete opposite end of the spectrum and two examples of really good squatters. What are the essential technique principles that are, that are standard for everybody? So if you look at those two squatters, what are the things that they share in common as far as technique goes? Okay. So the two things that, that you have to make a hundred percent sure are the case with anybody squatting is number one, your spine stays extended. Like it doesn't go into flexion at any point in the movement. And two, your knees don't cave in. And by that, I don't mean just like a little tick in. You see that with a lot of weightlifters. They come out of the hole and their knees may tick in maybe like 15 degrees or something. But, you know, just I'm talking about full on knees caving in, like ton of knee valgus. Right. So as, as long as those two things aren't happening and you keep your balance pretty well, then there's really not all that much that like super, super matters. So for example, like stance width, that's something I keep coming back to that more than anything that depends on your, on the shape of your pelvis and like the head and neck of your femur. So the actual hip socket itself can be located on slightly different parts of the pelvis. The pelvis itself can be shaped differently. It can be kind of narrower in which case the hip sockets kind of more around to the side, like a little closer to the front, or it can be kind of wider and more flared out, in which case the hip sockets will be more like towards the back. And so generally someone with a with a narrow pelvis is probably going to need to squat with a fairly close stance and won't be able to get super wide. Whereas someone with kind of that broader pelvis, hip sockets more around to the side slash back, they'll probably be able to squat wider and probably feel stronger squatting wider. And that that generally tends to go hand in hand with deadlift stance as well. So most conventional deadlifters squat relatively close and vice versa for sumo deadlifters. And so then you can also look at things like the angle that the neck of the femur comes off of the shaft of the femur and how rotated around the shaft of the femur it is. And there's there's a bunch of different little things. And unless those things aren't worth worrying about all that much unless you just plan on going and getting your hips x-rayed. <laughs> right. And yeah. for most people, I mean, it really is as simple as just experimenting with it for, for literally 15 minutes. Just yeah, right. starting at, you know, kind of a quote-unquote normal squat. Feet around shoulder width or so, toes pointed out maybe 10, 15 degrees. See how that feels and then just experiment from there. Just iterate a little bit wider, a little bit narrower, feet a little closer to the front, turned out a little bit more, different shoes, work up to maybe, yeah, you know, like a load that you can feel but isn't super challenging. So maybe around like 70% of your max and just hit two or three reps with slightly different techniques and just see what feels the strongest and just most natural and comfortable for your own body. Let me go back and ask you about the uh, the two things that you mentioned. So you mentioned the spinal extension and then preventing the knee cave in, the valgus knee stress. So with the spinal extension, do you like to coach a back arch or do you coach more of a, a bracing technique? As far as verbalizing what to do, I'm curious what you like to use. That's a good question. So it largely depends on the athlete. So one thing one thing that I find a lot is that people who feel like maybe their hips are like a little bit gummed up and just stopping them right above parallel, a lot of times those are the people that arch really, really hard. And when you're arched like that, you're in anterior pelvic tilt, 
uh, lumbar hyperextension a little bit. And most people, most like unless you're squatting so deep that just your hamstrings against your calves is what stops your depth. Most people, their squat depth is limited by you know, essentially when they reach full hip flexion, as much as their body can handle, that's what limits their squat depth. And so some people who have issues hitting depth, they'll wind up in that position because they do arch really hard uh, and they're in anterior pelvic tilt that starts them in a little bit of hip flexion just in the first place. And they're at any given point in the movement, they're in slightly more hip flexion than they would be if their pelvis was in neutral and their lumbar spine was in neutral. And so that can stop them a little bit above parallel. And for those people, I'll, I'll get them to try to get back to that uh, lumbar and uh, pelvic neutral position. And that generally helps their depth a little bit. And then vice versa, I, I've seen some people who have been working with that cue and, and they think their spine's in neutral and it really, really isn't. Right. And so for them, trying to get them to arch harder puts them in a better position. This was actually something that in my squat webinar with Omar Isaf, we talked about because we, for our own purposes, we use the opposite cue. So Omar is just like naturally extended, has good posture. I don't at all. Uh, he, has good, he has good posture. He's just naturally kind of extended. And so when he braces for the squat, he does, he does brace. Like he tries to pull his rib cage down, keep his pelvis in neutral. And that kind of moves him from a slightly hyperextended baseline back to neutral to squat. And me, on the other hand, like I have horrible posture and I'm just very kyphotic naturally. And so when I okay. squat, I am just focusing on arching really, really hard. Yeah. And then when you see a video from the side or whatever, my spine's not hyperextended. Like that barely gets it back to neutral. So uh, I think you can get a pretty decent idea of which one of those cues someone is going to need just by kind of looking at their baseline posture. People who are, you know, a little bit more just rounded over, a lot of powerlifters, um, they do, I think, benefit from thinking about arching just because you know, they're starting at a, at a pretty kyphotic baseline versus, you know, someone, especially a lot of athletes, they, a lot of them have pretty good posture to start with. And when they're thinking arch, 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 that limits their depth because they hit that full, full range of motion, hip flex, hip flexion sooner. And so getting, teaching them how to brace, pull their rib cage down, get their pelvis back to neutral, that can help them feel a little bit more stable and also get a little bit deeper. Got it. So that's a really good answer. And I think, Again, like a lot of things we talk about here on the show is that it really depends on the individual, depends on the athlete, and what you're going to cue them is going to depend on what you see. You know, so like mm -hmm. you said, if they're, if they're overly, you know, arched and they're going into some hip flexion, then you're going to be more cautious to use kind of the back arch cue. So, um, I think it's really important to, uh, differentiate how you would use that cue. We had a discussion about that with one of the uh, recent podcast guests here, but, uh, Excellent. Man, and I, I wish it was different. Like if I did all of this work and found like one way to squat that is objectively better than everything else, like, you know, I could write about it, package it in like a secret little ebook and like, <laughs> haha, I found this secret. But right. it's really just not like that at all. I mean, it is, I think the biggest skill that, two biggest skills that any coach and any lifter can learn is one, just how to grind and persevere because, you know, hard work produces results and generally harder work produces better results. So that's number one. That's obvious. And then number two is just troubleshooting, like basic troubleshooting skills, freaking out less about, oh man, like, am I like, is, is this absolutely without question the optimal way to do this versus better or worse, you know, just iterating, right. just seeing, does this feel a little bit better than this? Okay, I'll give this a shot. And, you know, just basic troubleshooting skills. Well, since you kind of, we kind of went to that topic, let me ask you, this is a question I've asked some of the guests in the past. What what makes a great coach? Is it that? Is it the ability to to troubleshoot effectively and not overcoach? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> there are definitely both hard skills and soft skills. Okay. In terms of hard skills, I think one thing that matters a lot is just experience and, you know, getting your reps in coaching. Unless, I mean, if you have the luxury to have like a full biomechanics lab and you have like software that can analyze technique and stuff for you, that I'm super jealous of you. But <laughs> I don't have that. Most people don't have that. Right. And just seeing 
human movement over and over and over and really trying to observe it closely, you just kind of develop an eye for it. So you may be able to see a movement and there's there's nothing kind of if you had a checklist of what good form for this movement looks like, there may be nothing that would kind of trigger that checklist, like something that jumps out that's just objectively horrible. But like to your eye, you know that something's not right about it and you generally have a decent idea of what it is. So that's just a skill you learn from getting the reps in. Another thing that's that's really, really useful is, again, and this, this comes along with experience, when you've trained a lot of athletes and you've read a lot, it just becomes a lot easier to think about the whole training process, uh, especially the programming part of it, because when you're just starting out, you know, you're reading a lot, you're seeing a lot, you're coaching athletes and seeing how they respond differently to stuff. And it can be kind of overwhelming. There's a lot of just discrete facts and bits of information and observations all coming at you. And uh, it can be overwhelming to try to make sense of it all. And the longer you coach, if you are actually like thinking through this stuff and trying to put these little facts and pieces and observations together, you start developing mental models. So, you know, it doesn't have to actually be like algorithms and like statistical models that you would run numbers through, but just basically models that you can use to generate predictions. So if this athlete changes their program this way, this is kind of the result I'm expecting. And I think that that's another thing that it's that's sort of in in the middle of a hard skill and a soft skill, but you mostly learn that through experience. And then in terms of just straight soft skills, like being able to relate to athletes, I've seen, I've worked with several coaches who the technical side of things, they're fantastic. Like they have a great eye for the movements. They really understand the biomechanics. They really understand programming, periodization theory, all of all of the hard skills they needed to be a really good coach. And like their athletes just didn't get great results because they they just couldn't connect with them on a personal level. A coach kind of has to be a chameleon, right? So <laughs> this may not be coming across in this podcast right now, but I'm I'm a little bit introverted. Like I'm relatively quiet. I'm not just like a super, super outgoing person. And so for some of the people I coach, that's, that's fantastic, because they're the same way. Like, you know, if I was sort of like the rah-rah high school strength coach, like yelling at them, they'd be like, bro, what are you doing? Uh, Like, (laughs) calm down, take it down a notch, you're scaring me a little bit. But then, you know, when I work with, say, like, high school, college athletes, most of them are kind of on the other end of the spectrum. And so I'll probably drink some pre-workout just to coach them because I need to to bring myself up a level in terms of energy so I can connect with them well, you know, motivate them, get sure. them to, you know, buy into the program, see like athletes have to be able to relate to you yes. on some level, I think. And right. so you, it can't be just an act. It can't be fake. But, you know, you do have to be able to speak the language of client, right. not yeah. the language I mean, of coach. Yeah, you have to be able to adapt and change your approach depending on who you're dealing with. Like exactly. you said, you might be a little bit more laid back with some people, and then you might be a little bit more kind of assertive with other people who, who need that. So you're mm-hmm. you're not being false, but you're just changing your approach and how you're dealing with that athlete. Yeah, makes total sense. Absolutely. Well, since we're talking about coaches now, so you've worked with a lot of great coaches. Who are the great coaches that you've worked with? Number one. And then the second part of that is what is the, the common great coaching skill that they all share? So second question first. Okay. So so two things. One, being able to relate to their athletes well and okay. get the best out of their athletes. And then two, they don't just put their coaching on autopilot. Like they maybe not in like a formal scientific sense of like developing a hypothesis, gathering data, running statistical tests, but they are always kind of running experiments. They're not complacent. They don't stumble across something that works and then just assume that it works best and stick with it forever. They're always, you know, trying new things, observing how do people respond to them and constantly honing their approach instead of just getting complacent finding something that's relatively effective and sticking with it forever. In terms of the coaches I've worked with, so my first coach, I was actually really fortunate in this regard. So I got into powerlifting essentially because I got too injured to play other sports. I ruined my knees. They work again, which is good. (laughs) Uh, Ruined one of my ankles. It still doesn't work, but that's okay because I stand in one place and lift weights. And... 
got way too many concussions to keep playing football or basketball. So basically, I got knocked out of like team sports. And Travis Mash, who was at the time probably the best, arguably the best powerlifter in the game, but definitely the best middleweight powerlifter, he was coaching athletes at the gym that I had been working at for for basketball. And he was like, hey, you're pretty good at lifting things. Would you like to be a powerlifter? I'm like, yeah, that sounds fun. Probably not going to take too many shots to the head powerlifting unless I do something just horribly wrong. (laughs) Uh, And so, yeah, he took me under his wing and taught me about powerlifting. And I, I learned a lot from him. And then when I went to college, I initially went as a history major. But then when I switched to exercise science and uh, needed an internship. I coached for him at his gym. And then again, the next summer, even though like I didn't need an internship credit anymore, he just hired me as a coach for, for the next summer. And then also, you know, anytime I was back from, from school. So that was a really good experience. And then after graduation, when I moved out to California, learning from Chad Wesley Smith, he takes a, a very different approach from Travis. So his background uh, Travis came from kind of like the football background and then uh, was powerlifting kind of during the West Side heyday. And a lot of his stuff was influenced by that. Chad came from a throwing background, so shot put, and that influenced a lot of his stuff early on. And now he takes kind of a, a more volume based, like semi Russian approach to it. And then I haven't actually got to hang out with him that that much, but someone that I taught coaching with a pretty fair amount is Max Ada, who uh, is a weightlifter and is now both a weightlifting and powerlifting coach. And he trained under uh, Abajayev, the Bulgarian weightlifting coach, for a while. So his stuff is is influenced by that. So those three guys, they come from very different backgrounds and have very different approaches to how they train athletes. And those are probably the three people I've learned the most from directly. Is there, and maybe you've said this already, but is there one big thing that you took away from all three of those coaches? Maybe it's what you said already. It's just relating to the athletes. Yeah, it's it's that. And then also, so two things. One, just in a general sense, when people train hard and don't get hurt, they get better. Like those three guys, they, I think their approaches are actually like kind of converging and becoming more similar over time, but Okay. They they come from very different backgrounds and at least initially had pretty different approaches and their their athletes all got better and stronger. There wasn't just like one magic program or one magic programming variable that did it, but they were good at relating to their athletes and getting them to buy into the system and train really hard. So that that's one thing. And then the other thing is in kind of trying to learn from all three of them, take some things from them, try to, trying to apply them to my own athletes. One thing I did find is a lot of discrete variables are kind of system dependent, if that makes any sense. So, you know, something that may work in sort of like a somewhat lower intensity, very volume based approach, if you try to to cart that in and and plug it into a more like high frequency, very high intensity approach that can just wreck people. Even if on paper, in theory, you, you know, dial down the training stress to make room for it. It just, just doesn't go together for whatever reason. So, well, in, in general, it, it is, I think, important to work on kind of developing your own philosophies of training and your own system, not like one discrete program you think is definitely the best, but kind of just like a system of thinking, going back to those mental models that I was talking about before, because there there are going to be some things that may work when they're interacting with one set of variables that may not uh, when interacting with another set of variables, even if on paper, it looks like it should work. Got it. Greg, let me go back. Let's circle back to the beginning and kind of your your backstory. So you talked a little bit about how you transitioned from an athlete into powerlifting you have some really impressive numbers. I hope you don't mind me reading and I hope these numbers are accurate, but a 755 squat, 475 bench, 725 deadlift. Are you still competing right now? Are you planning to compete in the near future? Uh, that's part of the, the first question. And then the second part is, who do you work with? Who Are you doing um, group trainings, individual training, online training? Okay. So um, 
Those numbers are accurate. The operative word in are you going to compete in the near future would be the near <laughs> part. I'm working at cutting right now, very slowly but surely. I want to get back down to either 20 or maybe 198 or the USAPL classes 231 or 207. I think that one, I would be more competitive there. Uh, and two, I would just be healthier if I lost some weight. So working at that, when I find that weight class, like when I kind of see where in that range I feel best, then I'm going to compete again when I'm very, very confident I can hit a 2000 total. That's the number I've been working at for the past two years. I, I've totaled 1885. And I like competing. I'm also, I guess, like a bit of a homebody. So I don't really just want to travel all over the place to compete. Like people, people ask me why I don't compete IPF and try to make the world team. And it's just like straight up, I don't want to spend $3,000 to travel to the other side of the world to do a powerlifting meet. Like, yeah, it, it's <laughs> like, I, I don't have a problem with people who do that. That just doesn't sound overly appealing to me. So yeah, I'll, I'll get back on the platform when I feel good about hitting that number that I have in my head. Oh, what, what was the yeah, other? Okay. So the second part, uh, thank you for sharing that, by the way. So the second part was uh, kind of who do you work with and, and how do you do oh, your, yeah. your coaching? Right now, I do I do still have a couple of in-person clients, but most of my stuff is online. I really, really want to get back to coaching in person, but that's probably still a couple years off. Right now, what's kind of just my three, five-year plan, whatever. <laughs> um, there's some content that I want to get on string theory first. So this squat guide was the first big pieces of those contents, whatever. The first <laughs> of those guides. Right. Right. Uh, and then bench, deadlift, several on programming, couple on nutrition and outside the gym factors. There will probably be hmm, maybe like a dozen that are kind of probably not that length. I think I do have more to say about squatting than anything else, but like long, comprehensive type things and just get that on the website. I'm not just crazy about how online lifting fitness content tends to go where it's, you know, it's just a content mill, you know, like right, right. you have, you have basically two options. The really important stuff that people really need to hear, you either have to find a dozen different ways to say it and write an article about that every three weeks. And that is not appealing to me at all. Like I'm sure it's helpful because you're getting that message out to more people who haven't heard it, which is like straight up. I would absolutely hate my job if I, if I had to do that. That just sounds so boring to me. So that's number one. And then number two is just, you know, try to find like little nitpicky things and just portray them as if they're really important and write about stuff like that and use that to drive site traffic. And I just, I mean, I definitely see it with other people like that can work from a business perspective, but I wouldn't feel good doing that because I mean, I'm, I'm in this to help people and I just don't think that's overly helpful. So what I'm trying to do to kind of get out of that whole cycle is just the 95% of the stuff I know that I think will be you know, really good and really useful to people. I just want to put that in these big guides, get them on the site. And then just when people have questions, I'll be like, read this, this right. will help contextualize it, tell you what you need to know, whatever. So that's, that's first thing. Next thing after that, going back to school to get my PhD. And so I probably <laughs> wouldn't have a ton of time to coach clients while doing that. And then after that, deciding whether I want to get back into coaching or do research. Hopefully I can find a way to do something in between. But just until until all of that's done, we're probably going to be moving around a pretty fair amount. So I can't get just a ton of in-person clients. So right now I do do a little bit in person, but it's it's mostly online coaching. But I, I do want to get back to more in-person stuff. That's uh I feel even though I do do most of my coaching online, I think I think that that is being a bit overdone these days. Just I think more than anything, online coaches sort of oversell how good their services are. And there are things about just in-person coaching that, that are irreplaceable. Like yes. yeah. you can't develop as, as close of a relationship with your clients across the internet. And a lot of the really important parts of the coaching process are done during the session itself. So you're seeing like, I, I don't know if I may just be weird here, but I know that like <laughs> there are things that I see in person that I that just don't jump out to me on video. It's just something about seeing another person there in front of you. You can kind of walk around, get, 
different vantage points. So I, I think that's really important. And then also, you know, you can give people a plan. You may even have like, you know, some biofeedback stuff built into it to try to um, help them make good decisions during the training session itself. But a lot of it as well is if you're seeing someone's crushing it on a day, like you push them to train harder. And if someone's just really not having a good day, you know, you, you get them to pull back a little bit. You find uh, something that's more appropriate for, for how much juice they have in the tank that day. And those things like maybe you could coach a client over Periscope. That just occurred to me. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, in, that could work. In, in general, I mean, there are really important things that you can do in person that, that help your coaching be a lot better and help your client get a lot better results that you just can't pull off online. And yeah. in person is, is, I feel like just it's objectively better and it's a lot more rewarding for me. So I, I do want to get back towards that. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think with technology today, I mean, we have a lot of things that we can use to really work effectively and really help people online, you know, mm -hmm. especially with programming and all the, you know, you mentioned Periscope and uh, Skype and things like that, you know, people sending you videos where you can really look at their technique, but nothing will replace that in person. I mean, that's just, nothing is as good as that. But definitely, you can be really, really effective and, and do a great job as a coach in the online environment in today's, today's world. So in reading your website and the incredible uh, articles that are there, I can tell that you really like research. You like reading through the research and, and looking at the studies. So a question I wanted to ask you, and I've asked this question to nutrition experts that have been on the show before. And the question is basically, how do you sort through studies that may be opposing. Okay. And here's an example. So you might read one study looking at uh, deadlift mechanics saying that sumo style is probably the, the most effective, uh, safest position. And th then you might read something else looking at another EMG study showing conventional is more effective and, and safer. How do you sort through and determine, and I'm just throwing this out there very randomly. How do you sort through uh, when you see studies that have may have two different interpretations and viewpoints on a specific topic? Oh, that's a good question. So first thing is you try to see if just one study is uh, better than the other. Um, <laughs> well, actually, no, that's not the first thing. The first thing is you try to find all of the studies on that topic and see if there's a preponderance of evidence leaning one way or another. Right. So, yeah. you know, if you just look at two studies, it may be one says this, the other says that. If you look at the whole body of literature, it may be 15 say this and two say that. So if there's a preponderance of evidence, if you look at the whole body of literature, go where the preponderance is. So that's that's the first thing. The next thing is if it is just maybe a small body of literature, there's maybe just two or three studies that may say uh, different things. Look at uh, the populations studied and then also the study protocols themselves and what was being measured. Okay, so for example, in the squat stuff that I was just writing about, there's something, there's something like 12 or 13 different studies that maybe more, maybe 15 or 16 that compare different technique variations in the squat. So, you know, maybe deep squats versus parallel squats or back squats versus front squats or high bar versus low bar. And they look at different variables. So, you know, maybe they're looking at muscle activation. Maybe they're looking at force output, power output, impulse, stuff like that. And when you look at them, the vast majority really don't show any major differences. Like like I was going back to, oh, and, and stance width as well. Escamilla had two really good studies looking at stance width. So in general, you don't see really any big differences when you're looking at two discrete variables being compared. But one thing that I know a lot of people have questions about is bar position. So uh, high bar versus low bar squats in particular. And I'm only aware of two studies that actually directly compared those. So one of them was back in 94 by the researcher's name was Rettenberg. And uh, one of them just came out last year, I think, I think it's actually in peer review right now to be published, but it was published as a master's thesis. Guy's name was Jacob Gooden from ETSU. So the two of them, th those are the only two I'm aware of that directly compare high bar squats and low bar squats. And they, they come to different conclusions. So Gooden's, he looked at uh, force, power, impulse, work, displacement, and one more that I'm blanking on, and essentially found 
really no meaningful differences uh, working all the way up from 20% of one rep max to 90% of one rep max and really just didn't find any major differences whatsoever versus Rettenberg who found uh, some, some pretty major differences between uh, the high bar and low bar squat. And so, you know, then you have to look at the two and say, you know, which, which one of these should I really put more credence in? In this case, Gooden's design was a lot better because he recruited people who had experience squatting with both techniques and it was comparing one person to themselves. So, you know, a person would do high bar squats from 20% to 90% and that same person would do low bar squats from 20% to 90% and it was the same thing for all of them. So, you know that the high bar group was identical to the low bar group. So, you're actually comparing you know, the effects of one bar position to the other bar position, not maybe one group to another group, which is what they were doing in Rettenberg's. So in that one, they recruited a group of powerlifters and a group of weightlifters. And the weightlifters high bar squatted and the powerlifters low bar squatted. Uh, like I said, they found they found some pretty some pretty large differences between the two, but there were two big problems. One, they found that force was way, way higher for the low bar squat. But problem there is... They were looking at, I believe, 70% of one rep max for each individual. And the powerlifters squatted something like 70 kilos more on average than the weightlifters did. So, I mean, no crap, they're going to produce more force with 70% because 70% is way heavier. And then also, instead of comparing just one bar position to another in the same group of people, they were comparing two groups of people. So uh, the powerlifters were something... Mm, I need to look back to to make sure it's the exact right numbers, but they were something like seven or eight years older. They'd been training five or six years longer. They were about five kilos heavier on average. And they squatted, like I said, something like 50 or 60 kilos more on average. So, you know, are you, are you really seeing differences between the high bar and low bar squat there? Or are you seeing differences between older, stronger, more experienced lifters and weaker, smaller, less experienced lifters. And so in a situation like that, just top to bottom, good and steady was performed much better than Rettenberg's was. And so in context of the broader body of literature, not directly comparing high bar and low bar squats, uh, but just different squat variations, Good and steady was both just a better study and it was more in line with the preponderance of very similar evidence. So in that case, I think that it's probably the more credible result. Got it. So I think the bottom line here is to, you know, when you're looking at studies, I think it's really important. And I said this before, but it's really important to look beyond the abstract, you know, not just look at the the little snippet of, you know, what the study was and what it found, but you really do have to look at the the trial population how the protocols were done, you know, look at the specific loads and all that kind of things, you know, and, and then make your decisions from there. So if you see similar studies that maybe have different viewpoints, different conclusions on what they're, they're talking about, you you really do have to drill down and understand these studies better. And that's really what you're getting at, I think. So, Mm -hmm. uh, so strength theory. So when did your website start and how's it evolved since you started the website, Greg? So it, it was an, it was initially gregknuckles.com, okay. uh, just like a personal blog. This, this isn't like a shot at people who do this, but I, I just personally just thought over time that it was, I don't know, just having a website be your name. I just thought that was kind of like too self aggrandizing. Like I didn't want the website to be about Greg Knuckles. I yeah. wanted the website to be about information about how to get bigger and stronger. Right. And so last December, we changed the name to string theory. Uh, which I thought was a good pun. Now I realize it's a really bad pun if you don't live in the Southeast because people don't pronounce strength, strength. They say strength and whatever. I'm I'm a Southerner. It's fine. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, initially back when it was just gregknuckles.com, it was, I actually just started it because my then girlfriend, now wife, just kind of got frustrated with me like talking her ear off about lifting all the time. She was basically just like, just write about this, like talk to other people about it. I was like, okay, that's fine, whatever. So yeah, I, I just uh, I just started blogging about it. And I guess it just connected with people. People liked it. And so by last December, it was it was doing pretty well. It was getting about 120, 150,000 page views a month. 
at that point, my my wife had just quit her job as a copy editor at the Orange County Register because traditional media is it's not a good field to be in right now. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> and so the site was doing pretty well. And she was like, hey, can I work with you? You're a really bad writer. The, the site looks terrible. And these are my skills. Like I'm a writer, copy editor. I can make your stuff like actually read professionally and I can make the site look a lot better. I can make you graphics. I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. So at that point, we rebranded to String Theory and we've been working together ever since. And she she really has made just like a tremendous difference. The actual information part is coming from me, but I I really am not that good of a writer. Yeah. Um, so she she makes just the whole package so much better and so much more professional. And that's been really huge in the past 15 months for the site to continue growing and reaching more people. Well, that is fantastic. You are extremely lucky. <laughs> you know what I mean? To be able to, well, I mean, the articles are great, but to be able to have your wife do the copy editing, I know that, you know, I've written some things in the past and I'll, I'll publish it and then I'll reread it after I've read it 20 times, 30 times. And I notice there's an error in there and I go back and fix it real quick. So to have your wife be able to, to uh, help you out with that is uh, really fantastic. Oh, it's, it's so. the best. She's a monster. <laughs> Like in the best of ways. Nice. So this is probably an obvious question, but is there an article that you're most proud of at this point? I assume it's a squat article, but is there another article that uh, maybe you want to uh, direct people to that maybe haven't been to the site yet? I'm really proud of the squat one. And then also I have one called the Complete Strength Training Guide. Okay. I'll uh, I'll just put that in the chat window if you want to link it in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. So it took you two months to write this article. How long does it typically take you to put together your articles? Oh man, it it really depends on how uh, just how long and in depth they are. Yeah. Sometimes it may take thirty minutes, and sometimes it may take a long, long time. And the frustrating. So I find that I find that articles really do sort of follow the eighty twenty rule. So. If I have three or four good sources, I have my thoughts together on something, I can find a few good pictures, some good videos, pound out a 1500 word article. It generally does pretty good versus, you know, I get a lot more sources. I have like a huge outline. It's just a really laborious process to really, you know, make sure it's it's long, but it's still tight and it's just good. And yeah maybe like 20% more people read it, but it's, it's fine. It's fine for me, I guess. Part of it is just sort of the sense of accomplishment, like looking at your work and being really proud of it. There are times where like when I'm doing it, I know I'm putting maybe more effort into it than, than I should and more than I'll actually get payoff from, but it does make me feel better like to look back on it and know that it is like absolutely my best work. So it, it does kind of depend anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes to a couple months. Yeah. I hope you don't mind me asking this, but this is a question I've asked some of the other uh, guests here who are writers and writing with their books and things like that. But do you have any daily uh, writing habits? So do you write every day at the same time or how do you work it? What I used to try to do is write a thousand words a day, every day without fail. And I did that, but I think that that was not the most productive thing I could do because this is actually kind of similar to training. So with, with training, uh, you know, you have some days where you feel really good. You have some days where you feel really bad. And when your plan is just numbers in your notebook or whatever, some days you're not doing nearly as much as you could be and should be doing. And other days you can get it, you can get it done, but you just feel like garbage in the process. And so the thousand day a word habit it was productive, but I don't think it was as productive as it could be. So some days, just my brain was not working. I could not write. Right. And I'd get the thousand words in, but it would take way longer than it should. And they were just horrible words that are never <laughs> going to show up anywhere in the right. first place. And then other days, like because like the thing I had on my to-do list was write a thousand words, I'd click it off in 15 minutes or less. And then just be like, ah, maybe I should write more. But I guess since this is off my to-do list, I'll move on to something else and maybe come back to it. And then either I just wouldn't come back to it, or if I did, like I wouldn't be in that zone anymore. And so what I do now is I picked up this tip from James Clear. Yeah, um, yeah. Love his website. It's fantastic. Uh, and that's if you have something that you think you want to do, 
but you just don't know how good it's going to go, give it two minutes and then reevaluate. I go for writing because it does take a second to get into the zone. I, I give it like five or 10 minutes, but like every day I'll sit behind a keyboard with a document and try to write for five or 10 minutes. And if I'm still going at that point, I just keep going and going and going until just the words stop flowing. And if it's five or 10 minutes and I've pounded out 50 words and I just can't write worth anything that day, then I just quit and move on to something else. That's helped my productivity a lot going back to the 80-20 rule. So maybe one or two days a week will be really good writing days. Uh, and I'll be able to sit down and pound out 5,000, 10,000 words just in one sitting over the course of about two or three hours. And that's just great. And then the other days where I can't write much may only be one, 200 words on a page. But I find that my weekly output is actually higher now than it was before uh, without that hard limit to shoot for. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, yeah, James Clear, his stuff is really good. Um, had James on the show here a long time back. Yeah, he has some really good articles and things around uh, writing and, and habit development, of course. So we'll make sure that we attach a link for James's stuff. And uh, it sounds like it's had an impact on you for sure. So I had a list of other topics that we were going to get into, and I don't think I'm going to go there. We've, we've spent a lot of time talking about the, the squat. So I think um, I have a couple more questions for you. And I am going to ask you this question about the squat. The biggest mistake that you typically see most people make in the squat would be what? Oof. <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess just going back to everything we were talking about before, just trying to shove a square peg in a round hole. I see this a lot. Uh, someone will find a lifter who they really like, they really look up to, and they'll try to emulate how that person lifts. And if you're built like that person, that's that's really not a bad strategy. If you're not built like that person, that's a really bad strategy. Uh, so <laughs> what's better if you do want to emulate how a really good lifter squats, try to find someone who who's generally built like you about the same height as you. If you're if you have kind of like stubby arms and legs and a long torso, find a really good lifter who's built like that. If you're lankier, find a really good lifter who's built like that and try to emulate that person's squat, not necessarily just your all-time favorite lifter who may not be built anything like you. Great, great advice. Let me ask you, Greg, so how, how many years have you been squatting yourself now? 11 or 12. Do you feel like you're still working on your technique or do you feel like you've totally mastered the squat? Oh, I, I work on it every day. Every day is an exaggeration, at least five days a week. So if you go back and, and look at how I lifted, there's a huge just night and day difference between maybe like 2000. Nine and 2012 or so. During that period, I tried a bunch of stuff and just totally overhauled my squat, made some other not huge, but I guess like noticeable adjustments in about the year, year and a half after that. And then really ever since then, I don't know if anyone except for me actually knows that my squat form is different. I think if you were just like looking at video, you would, you would assume that it was still the same, but there, there are little things that I'm still like picking up on just different cues, how I feel the lift differently, my intent at different parts in the lift. And so it's less like the big wholesale changes now and more just fine tuning. But yeah, it's it's still it's still a work in progress. Like I I don't think I'll ever be a hundred percent satisfied with it. The reason I asked you that, I mean I, I've been squatting for a long time myself and I still feel like I'm working on my squat technique. So I'm glad you feel like you're working on it as well. So What's the big advice you'd give yourself 10 years ago, uh, knowing what you know today? Probably the biggest advice I would give myself, two things. One, if you get injured, be, be conservative with injury management. I had a, a huge, a huge like multi-year plateau because I got a really bad back injury. That's not worth going into. But instead of really taking my time and making sure that it was completely squared away. I kept getting back into it too hard, too fast, re-injuring myself, starting back over again. And that was, that was so frustrating. And it finally sorted itself out when I just took some time off and really rehabbed it and got it better. And then I started getting stronger again. And I was like, dang it, I wish I did this literally years ago. So that would be one thing. The other thing would be uh, in terms of seeking out information, I used to I used to spend way too much time spreading my attention way too thin. Like I was the guy that read 
like 13 different blogs and websites and just everything they put out, just kind of taking a scattershot approach. Whereas I think I would have been much better off uh, earlier on to seek out between one and three people who uh, I really respected and I guess wanted to emulate and just tried to learn their whole philosophy and approach instead of picking up little bits and pieces here and there. And also, I wish I would have gotten into reading textbooks and journals a little bit sooner. But those that's the big thing. So uh, being being more conservative with injury management, and then choosing where I got my information more judiciously, like finding uh, just a couple really good coaches and trying to get more depth of information instead of just breadth and getting into reading scientific stuff a little bit sooner. I love that advice, man. I hope uh, people wrote that down because <laughs> that is really good. Uh, speaking of books there, the, your third point, what's the book that you recommend the most to others, uh, fitness book or, or other? I don't, I don't know if people actually like get anything out of this book, but it's, it's such a cool book. Power, Sex, Suicide, Mitochondria and the Meaning of Life by Nick Lane. It's so, <laughs> really? it's so cool. Just about how mitochondria explain how life came to be and a lot of the forces that shaped evolution of everything and also why we age and die. It's such a cool book. Uh, in terms of books that people will actually like, you know, get something out of that they can apply to their lives. Ooh, in terms of training, I still, it's an oldie but a goodie. I still really like uh, Science and Practice by Zatsiorski and Kramer. And also, just like another general recommendation, I really like uh, Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb. Excellent. Have not read that one, but I've heard a lot about it. That's a massive book, actually, Anti-Fragile. It's not as big as it looks. So it looks it looks like about 450, 500 pages. Right. Only about 300 of those are the actual book. Oh, okay. uh, he makes really, really extensive technical footnotes, which is the last third of the book. Gotcha. Um, I didn't realize so that. I would I would right. really recommend reading reading those as well because they help add like more depth to what he was talking about. Because one thing that a lot of people do complain about about that book is they're like, oh, he's trying to present it as if it's like all scientific and stuff, but he just illustrates it with a bunch of anecdotes, like it's just a bunch of stories. But he he does actually like explain the theoretical stuff and the technical footnotes, but that's not in like the body text of the book because I think I think he knows that that would like just bore a lot of people and confuse a lot more. If you had to say, what would be the one big thing that you took away from that book? Uh, oof. <laughs> this wasn't new to me, but it, it really helped crystallize for me when dealing with biological systems, bottom up thinking tends to work better than top down thinking. So kind of bringing this full circle when when thinking about the squat, the top down way to look at it would be, you know, let's sort of abstract kind of the platonic ideal of the squat and build like some sort of comprehensive model and then try to force everyone to do exactly that because it is theoretically optimal. That So that's that's kind of like the top down way of looking at it. And the way of thinking that Taleb kind of pushes in anti-fragile is that sort of bottom-up type thinking tends to work a lot better. So start with the uh, assumption of variability and then, you know, just, just tinker from the bottom up. Just tinkering tends to work better than trying to impose order. Got it. All right. Well, I got I to gotta, uh, check that book out. Again, I've heard a lot about it. So, Greg, people can find you at uh, strengththeory.com. Anywhere else that you want people to uh, reach out and connect with you online? I'm on Instagram at Greg Knuckles. Last name is spelled N-U-C-K-O-L-S. I'm on Twitter too, but I don't really tweet much. Most of my Twitter <laughs> is just like resharing stuff from Facebook and Instagram. So, okay. uh, and I'm, I'm pretty active on Facebook as well. So Facebook, Instagram, and website. That's about it. All right. Anything else that you'd like to mention before we uh, wrap up and I ask you my final question? I don't think so, man. I think, uh, I think that's about it. Well, we covered a lot, but we actually, there was a lot of, like I said, topics that I didn't even get to. And I kind of knew that we weren't going to get to all this stuff. (laughs) So, but I think we covered a lot of great things, uh, especially with the squat and, and about your website and the great things that you're doing. So out of everything that we talked about, my favorite question is to ask, what's the one thing that you'd like every listener to be able to take away from the interview here today? Learn how to troubleshoot. That's great. 
So yep. I, I think that's great. Whether you're a coach or lifter yourself, you know, learn how to troubleshoot your training, your technique, programming yep. challenges. I mean, you could go on and on about that. So yeah, I, I think getting experience, training, coaching, learning the science, all of those things. When when you confront a new problem, all of that stuff helps you predict a solution in the right general ballpark. And then with that as your starting point, tinkering helps you figure out tinkering, troubleshooting. That helps you figure out where the actual like optimal best thing for you is once you're kind of in the right general area. Definitely. Well, Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. This has been great. Guys, thank you for listening this week to the Ardella Training Podcast. We will see you next time. And until then, take care, train strong, train safe. Thanks for having me, Scott. You got it. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the podcast this week. And if you'd like to become part of the Ardella Training community, be sure to go to ardellatraining.com forward slash join to get your free training mistakes guide, which contains 12 critical training mistakes I made through the years. I know this 36 page guide will save you time and frustration and accelerate your training results. And it's free. You'll get that and so much more at ardellatraining.com forward slash join. Hope to see you there.